Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the other medical things that have happened to him during his life. Ari, in the last episode, we talked about day-to-day life on in-center hemodialysis. Yeah. And we talked about traveling and side effects, the challenges of in-center dialysis. Right, yeah. So this week, we are going to talk about home dialysis. Yes. But I think before we do talk about home dialysis, several episodes ago now, I just mentioned peritoneal dialysis in passing and didn't define it. Right. So I think a good thing to do for our audience to be helpful is to take a step back and talk about the two different kinds of dialysis, hemodialysis and peritoneal. So would you mind giving our audience an overview of that? Sure. So when I was coming up on dialysis, uh, there were basically two kinds of dialysis. There was hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. Uh, Peritoneal, I think when I first started in the mid-90s, late-90s, was new-ish, and I could be completely wrong about that. But it was a way of not having to go into a center all the time, and also it was touted as a thing that was um, generally better for you because it was more continual dialysis. So where hemodialysis is a mechanical form of dialysis, of blood cleaning, there is a filter that they refer to as the kidney, but it has um, fibers in it that the blood and other chemicals are forced through to um, remove the various toxins and things like that. Peritoneal dialysis is a chemical dialysis, and so what they do is they create an access in your abdomen. The peritoneum. Right. And that, yeah, that access is like a tube that or a port that comes out of your abdomen. Um, and it's, my understanding is, kind of prone to infection and things like that. You've got to be pretty careful. And so using that access point, you put a certain chemical mix into that cavity in your abdomen. And by process of osmosis, I think your blood is cleaned through a chemical process as opposed to a physical filtration one. And so then at certain points during the day, one performs what are called exchanges where you remove the old fluid that then has also all the toxins in it and put new clean fluid in it to begin that process again. Um, It's supposed to be, like I said, a process that is lower impact on your body than in hemodialysis because you're actually filtering the blood more constantly like the human body is built to do but it's also got things like you know you have a port coming out of your body and you have to put stuff in and take stuff out which is not for everyone and certainly was not the kind of thing that I was ever interested in doing Right. That was going to be my follow-up question to this is why you chose hemo over peritoneal. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like, too, I got a recommendation that hemodialysis would be better for me. And I, I'm not totally sure why that was. It's possible that my doctor, being fairly old school, didn't quite trust peritoneal or that he felt like I would actually get better dialysis from hemodialysis. Not totally certain. On, on my end, though, the idea of having a um, a non-organic 
part coming out of my body, and I'm saying that as somebody who wears glasses and hearing aids, was not exciting, <laughs> uh, to say the least. And I was also really concerned about infection. I mean, I know I can be pretty careful, but the idea that I, I remember having was that I'd have to go into some like public restroom somewhere and be performing an exchange. And I don't think that's how that works. And I don't think that's actually how it works, but I remember distinctly having that image in my head or that sometimes I might have to do that. And that really uh, squicked me out. Yeah. I think that there was kind of a feeling from you that having a tube coming out of your stomach that you were doing these fluid exchanges with felt a little bit like a colostomy bag. Yeah. that That's also true. Yeah. And also... The reason I mentioned peritoneal dialysis in passing mm -hmm. several episodes ago, we were talking about when you lost your second transplant and you were really out of it in the hospital and they knew you were going to go back on dialysis and right. somebody brought up peritoneal dialysis and one of your doctors said, no, 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 he can't do that. He's had so many surgeries in that area, plus this major allergic reaction to these drugs that tore up your digestive system in the abdomen peritoneal dialysis, the main risk is infection, and he is such an infection risk with the yeah. state of his abdomen right now. Yeah. So it was, um, it was, I think, off the table at that point, even though I would have wanted it to be completely off the table even earlier. And I think we should say, as far as I've been able to gather from research, doctors say that in-center hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis are equivalent health-wise. One is not mm -hmm. a better form of dialysis than the other. And so what right. they recommend for people with end-stage renal failure who need dialysis is pick what works for you. Right. Right. You had this reaction where you're squicked out by the idea. Some people aren't. Some people are more squicked out by blood. Yeah. There's also in-center versus being able to do dialysis at home is a major differentiator. Mm -hmm. It's a real change in lifestyle. So there are lots of things for people to consider. Yes. One of the reasons when I was first talking to you about maybe we should do this podcast that I thought was a good reason to do it is that you as a kidney patient have kind of had almost all the experiences. You've, <laughs> yeah. you've had the kidney failure. You've had living donor transplants. You've had deceased donor transplants, which we haven't talked about yet, but we will when we get there. Yeah. You've done in-center dialysis and you've done home hemo. Yeah. So I think that this is the episode where we're going to talk about that. And what I remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that home hemo kind of started around this time. When we were living in Seattle, we started hearing that they were doing home hemo. Yes and no. I think for people who are very wealthy, doing hemodialysis at home had almost always been a possibility because you just had to lease the machine for mere, let's say, millions of dollars and have a nurse who could come do that for you. And hook up the plumbing because the machine requires right. chemicals and water and it drains the fluid. Right. Right. So like I said, for the very wealthy, that had always been at least a possibility. But it was starting to become more and more practical right around that time when we were in Seattle because a company whose name I actually don't remember right now um, had recently come out with a machine that was doing a slightly different process, was technically portable and did not require um, any plumbing installation or anything like that. It was a kind of thing you could put on a shelf or a cart 
and just use it straight there. And they had set up a whole network of distribution to deliver the chemicals and the saline and the medical supplies that you need to do hemodialysis at home. And um, they were starting to pilot that program around the country. Yeah, and I think we were hearing about it, and I really pushed you to go ask your doctor about it and to get it started. Yeah, I don't remember how we heard about it, like you just said. You don't really either? No, I think it was just one of those things where you read a news story and it's not just, hey, in the future we may be able to do this, but no, somebody's actually doing it, and so I really encouraged you to go and do it because I... You were on in-center dialysis. We talked about your fatigue and your sluggishness. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to describe sometimes your motivation at that time was that you were very inertial. Oh, yeah. In that your body at rest tended to remain at rest. Yes. And so I really said, go talk to your doctor. Go see if this is a possibility. And then as soon as you did, it seemed like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's, uh, you're a good candidate for that. Yeah, I was a good candidate for doing home hemo. I still am, I guess, in that, you know, young, capable, able to learn a complex set of directions and do all those sort of things, responsible, fairly independent, all of those things. But once it came up, I was real hesitant. I was like, listen, this in-center thing is working for me. I know everybody there. They're great. They're solid. I haven't had any problems except for that one time where I got to meet all the very attractive firefighters. And that's it. Like, let's just keep it stable. And you're absolutely correct that you really pushed like, no, I think this could be better. And my doctors were saying, actually, I think this could be better. And I want to say that you wanting things to stay stable is totally a product of your experiences Mm -hmm. with your disease, right? When things are just going pretty good, even if they're hard, you know, being on insert dialysis can be sucky, it can be depressing, but it's a little bit the devil, you know, right? That We'd had these experiences where, oh, they changed one thing and all craziness broke loose. Yes. You know, oh, they changed a med and this terrible thing happened. Or there was this small hiccup and something else happened. And we were still living in that headspace where at any moment the routine could be broken Mm -hmm. and things could get really scary immediately. Right. And so while I was the one pushing, like, let's change it up, I really am totally sympathetic to the idea that it's really hard to say oh, let's change something when everything is at least, you know, okay, even if it's only four out of 10 right now. Four out of 10 is fine. We can take a four out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. There's no possibility it's going to go to three. It's solid four. So why don't we start by you just describing to the audience, what is home dialysis? How does it work? Okay, sure. So the way it works with this particular machine, which I'm sure now there it's like, probably Gen 5 or something, and I was on Gen 1. Um, and they're probably even competing companies, for all I know. But anyway, the, they had said hemodialysis has its advantages in the mechanical method, and peritoneal dialysis has its advantages in the chemical method. What if we combined those two? So they, they sort of solved a number of problems because... In-center dialysis only can happen so often for scheduling and financial reasons, and peritoneal dialysis uh, is great because it's more often, but it has you know much more frequent infections and things like that. And they don't you don't want to have like have to install plumbing or anything. So they had created this 
device that's that was like the size of a really old microwave, like the kind I kind of remember having in like the mid or early eighties, like a real giant war horse of a of a microwave. Um, it weighed, I think, exactly a hundred pounds with the case. Yes. Yeah. For reasons we will get into. Yeah, there's a reason I know exactly how much it weighs. <laughs> exactly. So, so this is a machine that was relatively portable, um, not like just carried around. You basically set it someplace in your house, and um, it had a kidney, an artificial kidney, but it also used um, osmosis. So it it had some elements of chemical dialysis and some elements of mechanical dialysis at the same time, which allowed the process, I believe, to be shorter. I'm pretty sure that's why you could do it shorter. But the basic idea was you can do this at home and you can do it uh, more frequently, which is to say every day. And because you're doing it every day, you don't have to do four hours. You could probably do like three every day. And by doing that, anybody who understands basic math understands you're getting more hours of dialysis a week by a lot, and that's only for the good. So practically speaking, home hemo or home hemodialysis, which is called that to distinguish it from peritoneal, which is also a form of home dialysis, is very similar to in-center, it's just at home. So you still need to have a fistula or some kind of access in usually your arm. There are needles involved, and the blood goes out in tubes. It goes through the machine. It comes back. There's a saline bag. There are alarms. Your blood pressure is being taken. Um, all of those standard things, things that are different. The machine is way smaller. It's less than a third the size of a in-center machine. Like I said, the actual process is different, which is basically invisible to the user. And then you, the patient, and or an assistant who is somebody who lives with you, as opposed to like a, a medical professional, have to learn how to set the whole thing up. So there are a number of tubes that one needs to use. Um, you have to do some programming of the machine, which is not as complicated as it sounds. And um, most significantly, and this is probably the biggest barrier of entry, is that you have to do what's called cannulate yourself. And cannulating means putting a needle in a blood vessel. Anytime you've ever had uh, blood drawn, someone is cannulating you. Or when they put an IV in. Or when they put an IV in. Um, getting a vaccine is different. That's just a muscle shot usually. But this is, it's a little bit tricky um, like I said, anybody who's ever had blood drawn, if they miss or something, that's a thing that can happen. So um, it requires training, obviously. Right. The, so why don't you talk about the training? Okay. So the, the company had really made a, a strong effort, and I feel like they were fairly successful in the engineering of the machine to make it simple to, I'm going to say assemble, but that's not right, to set up. Most dialysis machines are fairly simple to set up and take apart in terms of the parts for using them. Not like to actually repair it would be a whole other thing. But because in center, you need to basically take everybody's stuff off and then clean it thoroughly so that somebody else can use it without any fear of having some kind of blood contamination. This machine, of course, is meant to use, be used just by one person, but that person is a non-medical medical professional. So 
it was really well made to be quite simple. You just kind of have a, had a cartridge that you put in a slot and then you locked the slot closed. Um, and then it, you, you know, you put a tube here, a tube there kind of thing. And then you attached a couple of things. It was pretty simple. I would describe putting the cartridge in is like a cross between, like we said, it's like a microwave meets an old Nintendo <clears throat> meets kind of either a printing press or a ravioli maker. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you basically lift a big handle and a shelf slides out, and then you sort of slide it in and put on put on like some notches, kind of, and then it all snaps together, sort of. But obviously, the hardest part is putting needles in your arm. So I think it was like a six week course, something like that, that I did. It was still fairly new. Seattle is a, a place where dialysis didn't quite originate, but it's one of the first places where they did dialysis and they have a long history of sort of being at the forefront there. So I was training at a place that was named after one of the so-called fathers of dialysis. Um, and there they were still at the forefront, you know, doing the, the latest, newest thing. And what that meant was I was still doing in-center dialysis just I was using a different machine and I was doing most of it myself eventually. So it, but it was training, you know, there were manuals to read. There was, there weren't like classes, but it was one-on-one -on -one with a nurse who knew how to use the machine, knew how to be a dialysis nurse. And I went in and for the first week, mostly she put me on the machine while explaining what she was doing. And then I did more and more and more and more until for the last, I would say month, I did everything with her there just to make sure that it was okay. And that was part of, I'm sure, some kind of legal certification agreement that had been made probably with the FDA or something. Well, it's it's smart. You're essentially yeah. doing home dialysis, but at that center so that they can watch you do the whole process a bunch and there's a safety net there. Yeah. And if anything goes wrong, they're there to help you with what goes wrong, but they're also there to show you what to do if and when things go wrong. And we did drills on certain things. Right. So if you have a blood pressure problem, the machine will do an alarm and show a number. Right. And you'll have to know, okay, I've got to go into my big manual, find that number, and then step-by-step step do the procedure that's outlined underneath that number. Right. Right. Like if there's a... That's usually more of a an error or a malfunction. Um, but yeah, and we, we also did just did drills like, oh, your blood pressure is dropping. What are you going to do? Because um, that actually works different than an in-center giant hemodialysis machine. Yeah, and as your partner, I had to get some training in that too, right? Yeah. Both how to respond to alarms, but also, right, what happens if you start to feel lightheaded and low blood pressure? Yeah. Which is why I can say, okay, I'm supposed to recline you in your chair, and then I'm supposed to go over and adjust it so that you're getting more saline back from the machine so that that's right. coming down the IV pole. And so they were training me as the person who's not attached to a machine mm -hmm. what to do. Because if there's an emergency, I might have to be the one to act. Right. Including they taught us both, here's what happens if you know there's a violent storm and a power outage while Ari's on the machine, which includes cutting and clamping the lines right. to get you out of the house in an emergency. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I realize now as I just said that, that sounds very scary and might <laughs> intimidate people into learning how to do this if they're thinking about home dialysis. And I want to say it's not that scary and you can do it. Yeah, you can because uh, honestly, the cut and clamp procedure is going to happen at 
in center as well. There's just going to be a lot more people there and you might have to wait your turn. So it's super non-ideal, but um, it's part yeah. of the whole process. And I'll just say, you did home dialysis for years. We never had to do cut and clamp. Never, never. And, you know, you were lightheaded a couple times. I did the yeah. turn the saline on procedure. We sometimes had little alarms where maybe one of the tubes got kinked and, and you have to do the procedure to address that. But we never had a big problem. Our training was always more than sufficient. Mm -hmm. It worked very smoothly and very well. Yeah. Yeah. So I trained and did that. So um, cannulation, though, that's a bit of a tricky thing. Um, at that time, I had had other people sticking needles into my arm for not just for dialysis, but for... Um, blood draws and things um, super often for many, many years. Uh, in fact, I have one spot where I have typically given blood for blood draws where just several times I've had so many frequent blood draws that I actually have like needle tracks there, um, which sometimes throws people off a little bit, but it's just from that, nothing more exciting. But still doing it myself was hard and I had to learn how to do it. You but mean psychologically? Psychologically, yeah. And I mean, the actual physical skill is a little difficult. It's at a weird angle. But then eventually what they wanted to do and what I wanted to do too was move to what are called buttonholes, which is this super weird little thing in medicine or about the human body that never even occurred to me that it could be a thing. So what it is is basically by always using exactly the same spot at a very similar, if not exactly, the same angle to enter my arm with a needle um, regularly, I was creating a channel that basically I just kept reopening the wound. So my body, instead of eventually healing that to close it, sort of healed around it. So there was actually a channel, like I said, into... Um, into my fistula and not like there's an open hole into a blood vessel because obviously that doesn't make sense but there was a well-worn path in in essence so that after doing that for a while i would have scabs covering it and my body would sort of close that hole because it doesn't want me leaking out but i was able to use what are called blunt needles which are still like very thin and narrow they just don't have the sharpened tip of a standard needle and um, basically remove the scabs and just sort of slide the needle into that buttonhole. And I'm going to ask this because I think it might be something that other people are thinking as they hear you talk about this. Yeah. Do these buttonholes increase your risk of infection? Not to my understanding, no. Um, in fact, I think if they'd said they did, I would not have been interested in it. But they have tons of advantages. Uh, it, it makes putting yourself on the machine way easier it makes it much faster. It makes it less painful. Um, I have tons and tons of scar tissue all over my left forearm along the fistula where thousands of needles have been put into my arm prior to me using buttonholes. But the buttonholes themselves were just two spots. And I'm not sure I could, I just looked down, I'm not sure I could actually find where they were because it's been a number of years and they just healed. You know, if I ever have to go on dialysis again, and I hope I don't, and I'm doing home hemo and I want to have buttonholes again, I'm going to have to spend weeks, if not months, 
reestablishing or establishing new buttonholes to use. You know, it's totally healed. It's totally fine. I never once had a fistula infection in all my time doing home hemo or regular uh, in-center dialysis. So I don't think so, no. So you've got this six weeks of training. Mm -hmm. We've both been trained on how to use the machine. We get our own machine to take home. Yep. And then we start using it. Yeah, they also gave me one of those incredibly fancy and really good-looking uh, recliner hospital chairs that in... Um, the finest in beige furniture. Yeah, I thought mine might have been Dusty Rose, if such a color could be called such a beautiful name. Um, faded Pepto, maybe? But yes, something like that. It was a dialysis chair, which is an industrial kind of recliner. It really went with the rest of our room in that kind of desperate, free furniture, poor college student it definitely feng shui did. we were trying to establish. <laughs> it definitely did. Our design aesthetic. Yeah, you know, covered with only the finest in bloodproof materials. Once you get the machine home and we're set up and we're doing home dialysis, mm -hmm. you are doing it every day. Six days a week. Right. We, we sometimes moved the break day around. Usually it was Saturday. Right. So that we could have like, wee weekend day with no dialysis. Let's mm -hmm. maybe go to a movie or to the park or something. Yeah. Can you talk about the difference in how you start to feel doing home dialysis versus in-center? Um, well, just so much better. I was still often pretty exhausted right afterwards. You know, it's still dialysis. But overall, my quality of life became, uh, I don't know, decent again. Now, I mean, like you said, it was sort of a four. So we went from a four to like a six and a half, maybe, which is actually okay. Right. It felt radical and exponential. Yeah. And especially because then you weren't doing it in the morning anymore. We would have a day together and then kind of late afternoon, early evening, we would set up the machine together. You would go on dialysis I would either do studying for class or we would watch some TV shows together. This was the advent of the DVR. Yeah. Which so we could record anything we wanted. And then that was our TV watching time was while you were on the machine. Mm -hmm. And then you'd get off the machine. We could have dinner and then you could go to bed because you were tired after dialysis. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it helped immensely. It really evened me out. You know, I went from having these really deep back and forth swings that we discussed to much milder swings because I was dialyzing every day. I would not say that my, you know, my memory and cognition came back, but it improved a lot. Yeah, you got way more alert and quick. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't 100% me, but I wasn't the the dialysis zombie that I'd been for a couple of years. It was it was really really nice. The other thing, it also enabled me to teach more. Um, to do more music work because I had started to like make and have more like professional music and teaching and school contacts in the Seattle area. And so I was able to like dialyze kind of in the afternoon after you got home from class and then go to an evening marching band rehearsal, for instance, or something else kind of like that. And that was just nice to, you know, be doing something else other than sitting at home playing video games. 
uh, or sleeping most of the time. So I was just more engaged in general, and I, I needed to have been on home hemo or better, I guess, in order to do that. Because trying to, uh, at that point anyway, trying to teach while on dialysis would have been almost impossible. And you are always happier and more you, more yourself, regardless of how sick you are, when you can teach or when you can do music. Yeah, undeniably so. Yeah, I would say that you becoming untethered from a center and Mm -hmm. us having our own machine completely changed our lives. Yeah. And if there's anybody who's going into in-stage renal failure and considering dialysis and their options, I would advocate, I would proselytize for home dialysis Mm -hmm. as strongly as I can. If you can do the steps, if you can cannulate or if you have someone in your life who will do that for you, Mm -hmm. who lives with you or will come by every day, it is a total change. You were a healthier person. Your energy was more stable. We could do more with our lives. Yeah. I think one thing we haven't mentioned or talked about is when you do home dialysis, you have supplies in your home. Right. Hemodialysis or any kind of dialysis requires supplies. Uh, it is, as I've described many times, a uh, waste-intensive process. So in addition to fluid waste you know, things that are being pulled off of your body or... Um, or out of your blood. Uh, right, more accurately, out of your blood. There's also, you know, chemicals that one needs to use to do said pulling. There is saline that you need to make sure that you're sort of balanced and not just losing everything all at once. And there's quite a bit of sterile plastic and tubing that and gloves and needles and smaller things, syringes, that are single-use. Right. You put a fresh cartridge with a fake kidney on it every time you do it. Every single time. So (laughs) that has to get to you somehow. And that was part of, I think, what the entrepreneurs who came up with this machine had to figure out. They had to figure out all those supply lines and stuff. And um, I was really impressed with it because... They just had that figured out. So we had the machine at home. It was leased from them somehow. Um, And on a regular basis, then we would get a delivery. Once a month. Oh, once a month. That sounds about right. Uh, Once a month, we would get a a delivery. And it was very large. So um, for my prescription, I needed, for every run, I needed, I think, four bags of dialysate. And they came in four liter bags. Right. They were very big and very heavy. Um, And so I would get enough of those bags uh, for a month, which is, you know, now a lot. uh, If you can just sort of think about that. Well, a month, let's say 30 days times four bags per day. Yeah. Got 120 bags right there. Yeah. Plus 30 cartridges with fake kidneys in them plus all of the syringes plus the saline bags yeah and disposable gloves um there were occasionally some meds that i would take as part of dialysis like i took epo for a while which is a uh it's a drug that's used by actual health patients uh it, usually people who have cancer and and people on dialysis and a few other things um who become anemic as a result of their disease or their treatment. It's also a drug that is banned by most sports 
agencies because it's used for blood doping. Um, because if you take it and you're healthy, you can really train really hard and get lots of oxygenated blood. Uh, but I was, you know, <laughs> I was no such, no such person. So, you know, there were needles for that. There were gloves. There were needles to put in the arm. You need new ones of those. Uh, like we said, lots of saline. Also, just lots of little things too, like different kinds of tape and band-aids and bandages and um, sterile cloths that you dispose of every time that you put under all of these things so nothing's touching anything that it shouldn't. Um, special kinds of cloths and bleach for cleaning the chair and cleaning the machine every time. Uh, you know, lots and lots of things. So, yeah, they will deliver the whole month's worth at once, which means we have these boxes upon boxes of supplies stacked along one wall of our living room in that apartment, kind I, of permanently. And it worked yeah. sort of like a calendar that we, <laughs> once we could see more of the wall, it meant it was about time for the delivery to come again. Yeah, we were going to see UPS real soon. Um, I remember it actually being more than just a wall in that particular apartment, but... Yeah, it was. It's just a lot of boxes and supplies and uh, stuff. You know, to give your home that doomsday prepper vibe. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, they would deliver all that stuff. Uh, interestingly, because they knew it was a trash-intensive kind of thing, one of the supplies was trash bags. So usually, at the end of a a, a single dialysis run, then I would. Part of the process is gathering everything up and throwing it away, and that would be a full trash bag. Uh, that Yeah, we had a full one of those big-sized trash bags that we took out to the dumpster after every run. Right. It was just the dialysis trash, none of our kitchen stuff or any other trash from around the apartment. That was a dedicated, here's all the dialysis stuff in a bag, out to the dumpster, plus about two or three cardboard boxes that we'd flatten and take to the recycling at the same time. Right. I always felt sometimes a little pang of guilt for how not environmentally friendly this process was. A little. But it kept you alive <laughs> and your life is worth it. Yeah. Oh, and I would also say since you mentioned the fluid waste. Yeah. That, like you said, this machine doesn't have to be hooked up to any plumbing. You can right. do this in a regular home without trying to get a pipe that attaches to the machine. What they have is a tiny little tube, like an IV tube, for the fluid waste that comes out of the machine, and you set it up so that it's just draining into the sink. So yeah. all of the bad chemicals and the good chemicals that they were using for this osmosis process, but all the toxins from Ari's blood, all the everything, went through the machine, came out through this tube, and just drained down our sink. Yeah. And it could smell a little funny sometimes, but um, mostly it was okay. Right. We made jokes about how you peed in the sink. <laughs> yeah. Like we said, this was a really easy, great process for us. It always worked great. We never had any bad incident or anything scary that ever happened to us while it was going. One time when we were <laughs> cleaning up, you were taking yourself off the machine. Mm -hmm. You kind of bumped one of the needles, I remember. Yeah. And it sent, you know, leftover blood that it was already in the tubes in the machine. Right spurting across the walls of our apartment. Yes. So it kind of looked like a CSI crime scene. <laughs> yeah. I, I had taken the needle out and was applying pressure 
um, so that I was not bleeding, but in the process of trying to sort of set it down and hold my arm, which is a tricky thing to do, um, but I was usually pretty good at it, it caught on something, and so then it just snapped back and flung fluid across the wall in, in a perfect approximation of arterial spray. <laughs> Instead, it was just, nope. Ari was taking himself off dialysis. No big deal. We'll just try to sponge off the ceiling now. And having this machine in some ways made travel a lot easier for us. Yeah. We were living in Seattle at the time. Both of our families were in Portland. Right. And so whereas when you'd been on in-center dialysis, if we wanted to visit home, we would usually do that over the weekend. You would dialyze Friday morning, mm-hmm. be pretty exhausted. We would drive down I-5, the three and a half to four hour trip down to Portland. Right. Get there Friday evening, spend time with the family, and then, you know, you would be off dialysis for the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And we'd drive back Sunday night with you feeling really sick and drained and ready for dialysis. Right. And start up again Monday morning. Mm -hmm. And when you were doing home dialysis, it worked differently. Yeah. One of their big ideas when they created this machine, I feel like I'm doing sort of a commercial for them here, but one of their big ideas was that travel should be possible, that you shouldn't have to be on home hemo at home, but then when you travel, you have to do in-center or something. So every machine came with a carrying case that was stainless steel and had... um you know, all this foam and stuff inside. And that fit in the back of my car. <laughs> Maybe barely, but it did. And um, we could just take that and we could, because we were just driving down to Portland, we could just bring the supplies with us that we needed. But there were a couple of times where we were like, well, a holiday's coming up or somebody's birthday or spring break or whatever it was where we want to spend a little bit more time. And so... We just called the company and said, listen, we're going to be traveling to Portland. Right. Like if we wanted to spend several weeks in December around Christmas and Hanukkah. Right. And we'll be at this address for, from this date to this date and this address from this date to this date or however we wanted to set it up. And they would say, okay, they would deliver the supplies there. So we didn't have to travel with boxes and boxes of dialysis and everything else. We just had to bring the machine me, and maybe a couple of small things. And that was that was amazing. And so then I dialyzed at your parents' house several times, um, at my parents' house several times. You know, it's not the most convenient thing to do at somebody else's house because they haven't, say, figured out how to set up their house or their place for that. But being able to just have a machine that I could set up and hang out with everybody while we're doing whatever it is we do, play a card game, watch a TV show, just chat, is far, far easier and more fun and inclusive than having to say, oh, sorry, I know we were talking about going to the zoo or whatever we were talking about. I can't. For most of today, I'm going to be traveling to wherever the hemodialysis center is in Portland and being on the machine for most of the time before I need somebody to pick me up, um, which is which is a thing that we had done a number of times. Uh, right, when we visited family before you got home dialysis. If we wanted to be in Portland for several weeks over the holidays, we'd have to schedule visitor dialysis. Yeah. And that meant sometimes missing the big family dinner or right. scheduling a lot of things around 
the fact that you'd had to just disappear for hours and hours at a time. Exactly. And either you had to come with me and miss out or I had to be lonely, uh, which is, you know, not fun for anybody. So this uh, gave us way, way, way more freedom in that respect. And then I think that talking about how they can just deliver things to Portland may make it obvious to some people or not that travel elsewhere in the United States then is possible. They may have expanded at this point. Like I said, I don't know. But at the time, you could basically go anywhere in the contiguous 48 states and they would deliver supplies wherever that was. And they could kind of guarantee delivery at this time or at least on this day for these dates. Sometimes they would deliver them early. They would deliver them to hotels. They would deliver them to residences, to businesses, whatever you needed so that you could have the supplies and use their machine. All you needed to do was get the machine and you to the place. So to facilitate that, obviously they had all the supply lines that we've talked about, which was really cool, but they also had made sure that everything was within um, FAA regulations. And one of the regulations is, or at least was, that uh, you can't have a bag or any kind of suitcase or thing that you put on the plane that is heavier than 100 pounds. And so that had been one of their big goals, that the machine in its protective carrying case would be no heavier than 100 pounds. And so it was... 100 pounds. I think it was supposed to be 95, but they kind of knew that airport scales are not always super well calibrated. So that gave them a couple of pounds of tolerance. And so because of all those things, because of the the supply availability and because of the, the weight limit, they really facilitated a lot of things. It made our lives easier if we were, if we wanted to travel. Yeah. And we're going to talk way more about travel in the next episode Mm -hmm. because we did way more of it later on with the machine in our lives. But I want to say home hemo is a thing that I think a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with. Right. And you do. Yeah. And if people are listening to this episode and have questions about this, please send us an email, send us a comment. Mm -hmm. We will answer questions about this because I think in our experience, when you've talked about it, people are very curious about this. We had a machine at home that cleaned your blood. You had to put needles in your arm. It's kind of a crazy thing. Yeah. And we're happy. Whatever details you want Ari to talk about, ask him those questions. Send us those questions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that um, in-center hemo and peritoneal are still often listed as the only options. And I get that because you need to have a trainer. You need things like that. So this isn't as available everywhere as I think they want it to be, the the company wants it to be, and other things. But um, it should be. It's a fantastic option, and it it really really changed my life. It changed our lives so so much for the better. Yeah, I'm more than happy to advocate for that wherever I can. And that brings us to the listener mail for this week. We have one question. Jennifer asks. After Ari's second transplant failed, did Laura consider donating a kidney to him? Um, Yeah, I think you can probably talk about that more than me. I think the short answer is yes. Yeah, the answer is definitely yes. So after the failure of your transplant and you going back on dialysis, I thought about it a lot. Um, One of the issues just right away is that 
we um, don't have compatible, we don't have the same blood type. Right. And so you need a match and I am not a good match for you. Right. So that's the initial very big stumbling block. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Um, while we were living in Seattle, those first couple of years, kind mm-hmm. of both in center and you doing home hemo, we started to hear about cases where they would do these donation chain kind yeah. of things where if or webs right where if somebody had a spouse who wanted to give them a kidney or a loved one who wanted to give them a kidney but they weren't a match they could find somebody else right so essentially in, a, in an arrangement like this let's say i wanted to give you my kidney i could give that to another person and perhaps they have a loved one who would be a match for you and we would kind of swap and donate kidneys by proxy yeah, in fact, I, the word swap, I think, is the one that came up a lot, that it was sort of a donation swap or something, which makes it sound really casual, but yeah. And the reason I also said chain or web is some of the stories I was hearing that they would do kind of several links, that it wasn't one-to-one, it was this person has a match for this person's loved one, who is a match for this other third person's loved one, who is a match for this other fourth person, yeah. and the fourth person can connect the circle. Yeah. But at the time, that was still oh, maybe these other people at these other hospitals far away have tried it. Right. It's actually pretty common now. Not common, but not irregular. I feel like it's becoming more standard. Yeah. In fact, I don't think we really realized it at the time because when you live one place and you read, this one hospital's doing something, unless you are planning or willing to travel somewhere, you just go, oh, is it in my city? No. Okay, well, that's interesting. Maybe it'll come here one day. But coincidentally, the place that maybe not started doing it, but has done a lot of these sort of swaps or webs or chains um, is Columbia Presbyterian, which is now my hospital. And they do them somewhat regularly. And sometimes it's sort of a one-to-one, but more commonly, it's like a 12-way crazy logistical thing that they do. Right. And so at the time, we were aware of that happening other places because we were in Seattle. Yeah. And we kind of had one ear open to see how that was going. That was a thing that we both thought about a lot. Also, at the time, I was in school Mm -hmm. full time and you were disabled. Right. And during the summer, I worked multiple jobs because between my financial aid and the money I could bring in and the little bit of money you got from doing freelance work and some help from our families, we were able to cover the expenses we needed to live. (laughs) Yeah, cobble together that. So if I had to take time off either school or work to donate an organ, that would have been a significant financial issue for us. Yeah, I think one thing that we both talked about was that we both wanted and needed you to continue your studies uninterrupted. So while it was technically possible that you could, say, finish your school year in like mid-May and then the next week donate a kidney and I would get that one or probably somebody else's and then we'd both recover over the next three months or so and then you could go back in the fall just in time, you know, that's not ideal. And if anything went wrong, that messes up everything. And so... And we'd also need a way to pay for rent and groceries right. during the summer. Yeah, there's a lot of other other issues there. And so we really had talked about like definitely undergrad and you were already talking about grad school, law school kinds of things. And so probably once we've got that under our belts, then that's that's when we can talk about those sort of things. Right. And we kind of thought, 
once we get that done, they will be doing those swaps much more commonly and it will be available to us. Which is true. Which is true. We were right. <laughs> Just didn't, uh, didn't, wasn't relevant for us. Right. And the way I feel right now with the swaps is mm -hmm. that right now you have a donated kidney that works. Yeah. And we both want your transplant to last forever and yeah. it's doing really well. Mm -hmm. But I kind of have the feeling that part of me is sort of holding a kidney in reserve for you should you need it. Yeah. That if your transplant fails and they don't at that point have better options, you know, the genetically compatible pig kidney or a 3D printed kidney. Right. That I would do a swap. Yeah, probably. Like, I really don't want you to have to do that, but um, I guess it's nice to know that it's there. And my hope, of course, is the same as yours, that this kidney just lasts for the rest of my life, which I hope to be very long, or if it doesn't, that it lasts well long enough that one of these other new technologies is no longer new, it's just super standard and awesome, so that I can just take advantage of that when that comes up, fingers crossed, in 40 years or something. Right, and I also want to say that if I didn't feel like I had to save this kidney for you in case you need it... Sure. I would be a living donor now. I, I think that because I work mm -hmm. from home, because we have a schedule and finances that I think at this point could accommodate me taking that time, right? I would do it. Yeah. Because I've seen the difference it can make for people. I know what organ donation means. Yeah. And I don't need a second kidney. And I think that people who can and are in a position to sort of shoulder that inconvenience should because it's what the inconvenience would be to me i know what happens on the other side and it is more than worth it to do that for another person yeah yeah i mean the thing you're talking about which is just sort of altruistic donation is very rare for a lot of really obvious reasons most of the time when people donate a kidney or an organ they're donating it either specifically to somebody they really care about or in one of these chains and swaps that we've talked about, which makes perfect sense because it's not just an inconvenience. It's major surgery, which has its own, you know, actual dangers and a serious time commitment. Um, and so if you're not giving it to somebody specific that you know, the ability to sort of take that time off of work or the rest of your life is difficult. So the idea of even with a further step removed and just saying, here's a kidney you know, you can do that. You can call up just about any hospital and say, hey, you know what? I'd like to do this. And I kind of wish a lot of people would do that. But I recognize that is a huge step above and beyond what the average person can and would do. I think that most likely at some point in my life, I will be a living donor. Yeah. Either you will need me to do the swap if your transplant doesn't last. Right. Or if that is not necessary and you predecease me, then I will be a living donor then because hmm. you don't need it. So there is a small outside <laughs> chance that neither of those two things will happen. Right. In which case, I'm an organ donor and I will be a deceased donor. But that is my plan. I, I actually didn't know that was, uh, that was your plan. Um, I hope... <laughs> I don't know. I... It's selfish to say that I hope I don't predecease you, I suppose, but... Um, 
I'd prefer it that way too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I that is the generous person that I know and love. And since, you know, I think probably talking about who's going to predecease whom is getting a little uncomfortable, <laughs> I think we're going to transition right into my final question, which is, Ari, how are you feeling this week? Um, I'm still pretty run down. That's right. You left us on a cliffhanger last <laughs> week. Did you ever hear back from your nurse? Um, I didn't. So I need to, I need to call them back. Uh, that's a thing that happens sometimes because, you know, they have so many patients I can't even keep track. Not that it's my job to do so. But yeah, I'm still pretty, feeling pretty run down. I, it's also just been an insanely busy several weeks. And this last week especially was just, all the things I could handle plus five more every day. <laughs> um, that's the thing. I think a lot of people have that in their lives. And sometimes that's just a, especially seems to be a thing in teaching because we have other people's lives that we're trying to help <laughs> and uh, make better. And so you think, okay, you know, for instance, so one time earlier this week, I had a free half hour. And a free is in heavy quotes, but still I had a free half hour and I was like, great, I'm going to go drop this off in the office and then I'm going to be able to sit down and write that document that I need to write to give to my principal. And on my way to the office, I ran into um, an 11th grader who was a student of mine the past two years in the hall and she had been having like some real personal problems with other kids and some other things and was just like, hey, Ari, can I talk to you? And I was like, oh, of course thinking it was like five minutes and instead of it being five minutes it was more like 45 so not only was my half hour gone like other time that i really didn't have was it was just gone and i was totally happy to be available for that student you know for just about any student i would do that but that's the kind of thing that comes up all the time <laughs> like yeah okay great gonna get this nope actually something else just happened or a teacher needs to talk to you about well hey this just happened with this kid and this other kid and we need to figure out a way to get them glasses or something and so it's it was a week full of those kinds of things um, including a, a performance by some of my students that went very well and then this weekend has also been very full but in a really good way so, um, yeah, I, I was feeling run down and then it's been very, very busy. So um, I am feeling positive about things, but um, I'm tired. I'm going to get to bed a little early today and uh, we'll see where we go from there. But the good news is we are now recording our first ever episode in the month of October. Yes. Which means you made it through one full month of the school year calendar <laughs> without needing to take a sick day. Well, that is a pretty, that is, that's really nice. Yeah. You know, the start of the year, everybody comes in all healthy, and then a weekend, everybody gets sick, especially kids and especially teachers sometimes. And a week or two ago, some kind of stomach virus went rampaging through the sixth grade, and I managed to avoid it thanks to my friends at Purell. So yeah, I'm pretty stoked about that. I'm looking forward to a lot more months like that. I am too, and I think we should take little <laughs> victories wherever we can. Yeah. If you want to send a question or a comment to the KidneyCast, please, please, please email us at kidneycast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidneycast and Twitter at kidneycast. All of the episodes of this podcast are available with show notes on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you so much for talking with me this week, Ari. Of course. And thank you to everyone for listening. 
be sure to remember to sign up and become an organ donor.